One of the charms of old New England towns are the deep-rooted farm roads that preserve their rustic character. They networked vast pieces of land, many of them named for the families who lived and worked there. Flanagan Hill is one of them. Immersed in this natural beauty, a home built in 1785 has stood for centuries. Its lumber was produced from old-growth forest, harvested on this land, and shaped at an old sawmill which stood on the banks of the nearby Nashua River. Iron nails and mortise and tenon joints bound together post and beam so well that it has lasted for 230 years. Nearly a hundred acres of green and gently rolling land surround this old farmhouse, a surviving gem from the post-colonial period. The margins of this road are marked with thick stone walls that were slowly built season after season. Those stones were scraped loose from solid bedrock over 30,000 years ago. Huge ice sheets dragged them for hundreds of miles, and these stones were scattered throughout the region and came to rest in the thick glacial soils. Through each passing winter, the frozen earth would deliver them up to the land workers above, who would drag, lift, and position them into organized lines. This annual ritual of give and take now long ended. Those once steel gray stones are now covered in medallions of a pale green lichen, giving them the hue of an old tarnished brass. Decades in the making, every rock sits now just as it did the day it was positioned. And as it is with similar accounts of our cultural past, the original family that fitted those stones in place has been lost to record. In time, a new people would create their own story here. If only I could have stood on this precise location a little more than a century ago, this quiet spot would have been alive with activity. To return is impossible, yes, but not unlikely, because an alternate reality has been keeping this spot suspended in time. In the ground here, two very different objects are waiting to be found. Dropped into the earth 117 years ago and no longer circulating among the living, they ceased to flow through history's timeline. Instead, they became a placeholder of it. Nestled there together in the soil, they created a vector point for a captivating tale of the American dream and the nightmarish events that all too often preceded. It was all brought back to consciousness in one single moment when I brought the lost to the light. This is Life Underground and I'm Dan Tebow. In this episode, I will examine how two lost and lifeless objects are woven into a compelling story about a resilient family of immigrants, the local breeding of the strongest work animals in America, and how together they helped build one of the greatest civil engineering projects in the history of New England and the world. Being on an old farm is like therapy. There's a quiet here that I find necessary. It gets me away from tedious responsibilities and commitments that produce anxiety and restlessness. When these concerns are allowed to fade away, there is a feeling of inner freedom rather than worry over the pressing concerns of everyday life. This quiet setting suits me for yet another reason. To me, the earth around us is an enormous and undefined time capsule, waiting to reveal the inner workings of lives that had both beginning and end. I search for discarded traces from those lives, and it's in this setting where the most thought-provoking discoveries happen. Not because of the objects themselves, 
but because of the stories they reveal to us and the lessons they offer, if we allow ourselves to be teachable to them. On a late summer day behind the farmhouse, my machine was offering a jumpy signal coming in as both copper and iron. Normally, I disregard a mixed signal like this because all too often it ends up being annoying and unwanted trash. From time to time, I allow intuition to give way to reason, and down to the ground I went to cut through the grassy duff and explore the soil below. Justified but puzzled, I found two items in the very same hole, each that I have found separately many times before, an Indian head scent and an old horseshoe, copper and iron. In the short time I have been relic hunting, I have discovered over a dozen coins like this, and as far as horseshoes go, they were what styrofoam is to modern litter, and they abound in old farm fields. That I should find these two side by side was perhaps not so much unusual as it was auspicious. The coin was minted in 1900, and by itself is of little consequence. And blacksmiths could churn out dozens of shoes a day. The significance of these two items is what they represent collectively. The year 1900 was the midpoint of the local building of the Wachusett Dam and Reservoir, and the hammered piece of iron was fitted to massive animals that played a crucial role in its construction. And the people who lost them came from a great distance and suffered intensely before they were fortunate enough to possess them at all. Their story begins in the year 1854 and 3,000 miles east to the city of Castlebar in Mayo County, Ireland. Devastated by the Great Potato Famine of the 1840s, approximately one million died of disease and starvation, while another one million were displaced. Mayo County was the hardest hit, and thousands literally died on the so-called death roads, trudging to one of the few workhouses which offered only the very dimmest chance of survival. Among the dead, many were found with clumps of half-eaten grass still in their mouths. They were unceremoniously buried in shallow ditches, often exactly where they fell. Reeling from total depression, scores of the hard-pressed sought opportunity in the United States. Many trying to flee death in Ireland only met their end aboard what were known as coffin ships headed for America. In 1854, this is the bleak world Thomas Flanagan and Mary McNicholas were born into. They didn't know each other in Ireland, but both were lucky enough to secure financing and passage and emigrated in 1869 when they were 15 years old. Thomas sought work as a stonemason in Bel Air, Ohio. Mary was following families that sought work in the coal mines of Pennsylvania and West Virginia, but also ended up in Bel Air. In the 1860s, well over 300,000 Irish immigrants lived here. A world away from the place they called home, Thomas and Mary were two strangers in hundreds of thousands that fate would bring together. Here they met, fell in love, and were married on February 21, 1887. The 1880s was a time of turmoil for Irish Americans, especially in this part of the country. In the coal region of nearby Pennsylvania, 20 Irishmen were hanged after an undercover operation led by a Pinkerton investigator infiltrated a suspected Irish-American terrorist society known as the Molly Maguires. Scholars today argue whether the society existed in the United States or if it was manufactured by the coal companies to squash labor unions in the area. Many Ohioans violently opposed immigration, 
especially the influx of the Irish for oversupplying the workforce. With each group competing for their realization of the American dream, optimism and civility was tainted by fear and mistrust. With hope fading and weary of the strife, Thomas and Mary headed east to central Massachusetts. They purchased this farm in 1896. The total price for the land and structures was $700, and it was paid for with a bag of gold coins loaned to them by a wealthy and altruistic scientist from Harvard University, Jonathan Thayer. There they started a business on the farm, raising draft horses for the construction of the Wachusett Reservoir between 1897 and 1905. The Wachusett Reservoir was deemed a necessity by both Boston and state officials to solve the problem of severe water shortages for a steadily growing urban population. A true crisis, legislation passed on June 5, 1895 and set the project in motion. Engineers arrived on July 30th of this year to survey the valley at the intersection of the Nashua and Quinnipoxit rivers and plan logistics for the removal of two mills, one hotel, 53 homes, and 14 barns that belonged to the four surrounding communities. In addition to these structures, an immense amount of soil would have to be excavated to create a basin and form a gigantic series of dikes stretching over five miles in length. These barriers of earth would contain 65 billion gallons of water. Created painstakingly in six-inch layers, the soil was put down, saturated with water, and then evenly compacted by steamrollers. To complete this staggering project, over three and a half million yards of earth was removed from 4,200 acres. All of this material was largely dug by hand and placed in carts, led by draft horses bred by Thomas and Mary Flanagan. At six feet tall and over 2,000 pounds, a team of two horses could move 17,000 pounds. They also carried water for compacting the dike layers, tools for the workers, and even over 4,000 disinteared bodies from nearby cemeteries for reburial in nearby Lancaster. The construction of the dam itself required an astounding 300,000 cubic yards of stone, which comprised the 200-foot-high, 965-foot-long fortification. These vast stones were quarried some 20 miles north and brought in by rail, but it was once again Flanagan workhorses that offloaded them from the train to where they were finally hoisted and set upon each other by wooden derricks. The last stone was placed on June 4, 1905. At its completion, it was the largest public water supply reservoir and gravity dam in the world. Engineers preparing for the Panama Canal paid visits to the site to see firsthand the construction techniques used in the dam wall. The reservoir is seven miles long and over one mile wide. Its surface area is seven square miles and its deepest point is 120 feet. The total cost was $11 million, and it took 13 years to build. Of the laborers on this project, only 1 in 20 were born in America. Many were Italian, Hungarian, Finnish, and Southern blacks. They were unskilled laborers, earning between $1.25 and $1.50 per day. With a five-pound bag of flour costing five cents and a half gallon of milk 14 cents, this puts the loss of the coin in perspective. 
They lived in ramshackle work camps and were experiencing the same struggles the Flanagans did when in Ohio. And 37 of these immigrants died performing the dangerous tasks required for this project. To this day, no monument or plaque exists in commemoration to the individuals who sacrificed so much in the building of the dam. But even back then, at least one person appreciated them and was compelled to pen this poem. Written in 1900 by Carrie Adams, she offered these sentiments, and who better to read them to us than Thomas and Mary's great, great, great granddaughter, Charlotte. Far down in the darkness beneath us, men bent over their wearisome task. Like dwarfs or pygmies they labored, half hid by the night's gloomy mask. The work looked so slow and so hopeless, no trace of design could be seen. Just groping and toiling in darkness, without plan, purpose, or scheme. But the toilers there in the darkness knew little of purpose or plan, so great that it seems like a fable or miracle wrought by man. Yet each has his task or his portion, a glimpse of creation's great soul, where each is a part of the other, and all are part of the whole. With the light of the knowledge before us, that we are part of other plan, we can work and trust to the Father, his infinite purpose for man. Thomas and Mary Flanagan's draft horses were instrumental in providing the power to move earth, rock, and the human souls which made Boston's quest for a healthy water supply a reality. To this day, people in that city access water from the reservoir they helped build. This was a turning point for this family of immigrants acclimating into an open but privileged society. Finding a place to call their own and no longer required to perform menial, dangerous work for low wages, the farm allowed them the responsibilities and dignity of a self-sustaining livelihood. Not to mention a big family. Together, they had nine children. One of the Flanagan girls was among the first to attend business school, and one of the boys lost his eye fighting in World War I. They all worked the farm, growing their own food and celebrating life with a strong faith and sense of community. Mary made all the children's clothing by hand. They had what were called kitchen rackets, where neighbors crowded in and danced to the strings of a fiddler. In 1915, they were prosperous enough to buy a Model T Ford, its price being nearly as much as the original cost of the farm. Making grape jelly and taking winter sleigh rides into town at Christmas, it was an idyllic life from our perspective. Now prospering and realizing the dreams so many immigrants desire as they strive for better lives, they never forgot where they came from. On this farm, they took in scores of other immigrants, helping them make their beginning by providing them with food and housing in exchange for labor in the fields. Thomas and Mary's descendants still reside on the farm. Ten-year-old Charlotte, our poem narrator, along with her brother Seamus, are the latest expression of the family line. If you drive down Flanagan Hill today, you may see Charlie's farm stand, where she sells eggs from the chickens she raises and cares for. 
Their parents, Jim and Miranda, are committed to keeping the land preserved as open space for generations to come. And for this, we owe them a debt of gratitude. It would be all too easy and profitable for them to carve it up into pieces and sell off to developers. Instead, they want their children roaming free to play and work on the land, continuing a legacy of perseverance and success that had a grim and humble origin. Searching for relics on the old Flanagan farm was supposed to be my escape from the world, but instead, it brought the more important elements of it into focus. Sometimes it's in the quiet and solitude where you find yourself being confronted with the questions you hadn't considered before. The Flanagan story is one of success, but why is it that we seem to celebrate the underdog only after they overcome their challenges? When the struggle is proceeding, it's ugly and chaotic. During these times, we often oppose and expect the worst from one another. Even then, we continually and unwittingly build a new society together where intolerance is slowly dissolved. The playing field is level in this fight, and winning is determined by commitment, desire, and pure stamina to withstand the blows and challenges. And years later, we look upon these stories as noble and courageous. Over time, acclamation gives way to acceptance, the great eraser of difference. The Flanagan story is best represented by the stone walls that continue to define the land here. They were created by a dramatic and violent upheaval, displaced and forced over miles into strange new lands. Like the individual stones, they were each in the way, unwanted upon their arrival, and utilized to divide. Now aged and graceful, they symbolize the beauty, strength, and endurance of time. This episode is dedicated to the memory of another pioneer, Sandra Adelson Burnswig, who co-founded Detector Electronics Corp. in 1983. Started in her basement, the company grew to become the first online retailer of metal detecting equipment in the world. Her sons Daniel and Michael continue her dream at their storefront here in Southborough, Massachusetts. Their URL is www.metaldetector.com. Use the promo codes found in this episode's show notes to save $5, $10, and $20 on your next purchase. Also in the show notes, you will find the materials I used for the history of the dam's construction and primary sources on the Flanagan family, ways to connect with me on Facebook, and links to subscribe, download, rate, and review this podcast on Apple and Android. This is Life Underground, and I'm Dan Tebow. May you bring the lost to the light.